you are in the perfect place at the divine time to be touched by a horse. Here's your hosts, Melissa Pierce and Dane Cheek. Well, hi, everybody. This is Melissa and... This is Dane. (laughs) We're back for episode two, and we really had fun doing episode one, I will say that. It's kind of the origin story of how I got started with horses in this type of work that I do. And one of the things we kind of took off with from that one was a, what I call my Chica story. So that was my very first horse. And, yeah, you know, that, we were... that crazy horse you had. Or <laughs> the crazy owner. The crazy owner. She wasn't She wasn't that. But it's, it is a great story. And I think it's kind of the story of a, a lot of things for me. So we'll just start there. Okay. All right. So, and I'm not sure how much of this story I've even told you. And here we've been married for all these years. I'm not sure I've told you the details. So I'm sitting in sixth grade junior high science class with my teacher, Mr. Slaughter. And I couldn't wait to get out of school. It was like the very end of summer. It wasn't the last day, but close to the last day of school. I had that feeling like, oh my gosh, let me out of school. Can't wait for summer. And he said, hey kids, before you leave, just like an afterthought. He said, I have a horse for sale and I really need to get her sold. So if you're looking for a horse, I have a horse for sale. And I mean, I felt like that was landing in my ears only. Like that's my horse. I just kind of knew in my heart and my head, she was my horse. Now, meanwhile, I've been asking my parents, we lived on a golf course, okay, we only want a farm. I've been asking my parents for a horse constantly. And they were like, we don't have any place to put one. They're expensive. You don't know anything about them. I'd gone to the riding stables, you know, as a kid, but I didn't know what it was like to own one myself or any of that. So my dad, thank God, was off working as a consultant for Texas Instruments and he was gone for a week. So I go home and I con my mom saying, my science teacher wants to meet you. And so we're supposed to go over to his house. He has a horse for sale and like to see his horse. My mom's like, we're not getting a horse. I'm like, okay, but you got to go meet my teacher, Mr. Slaughter. So we go over there. And we drive in, I jump out of the car, I run into this guy's rackety old barn to see this horse. My mom follows me, we go in, and this horse to this day in my life was the thinnest, most emaciated, sad looking being. But through the eyes of a child, through the eyes of an 11 year old, she was wonderful because I knew she was gonna be mine in my head. So my mom took one look at her from an adult perspective. She's not a horseman at all. She was an artist, but she recognized how starved this horse was. So she asked Mr. Slaughter if she could talk to him outside. And you remember, my mom was a force to be reckoned with for sure. So they go outside and I'm petting my horse because I thought she was mine right there. And I'm petting her and she's real quiet because she was near death, but I didn't know that. And I hear the adults, my teacher and my mom, yelling at each other. And I didn't know what it was about, and I didn't care. And my mom comes back in. She says, come on, we're leaving. And I said, well, do we do we get the horse? Did we buy the horse? She goes, yes, we did. Get in the car. So I'm like, yay, got my horse. You know, I'm a kid. I don't care. And what had transpired was my mom and dad had a terrible marriage, really tough. 
and they were divorced soon after that. But during those years, my mom was incredibly unhappily married. And my science teacher, my mom asked why the horse was so sick and so thin and all her bones showed and all that. And he said, well, my wife loved the horse and she wasn't willing to sign the divorce paper. So I quit feeding the horse until she would sign. And it incensed my mom so much. The last thing she was gonna do is buy me a horse, but she knew she could rescue that horse if we bought her. And she didn't plan on me keeping her. So we get in the car and she says, we bought the horse, but we're not keeping it. I'm like, whatever, she's my horse, you know, I <laughs> didn't worry about it. So that afternoon, like an hour later, he hooked up his trailer, he put her in there, he brought her over. Remember the part where I said she lived on a golf course? And this was what Dane asked me about in, in episode one. And I had this long pause, like, what? Oh, we're going to tell that story, are we? So I don't, I've been in rental stables. I didn't know anything about horses yet. So my mom quickly says, go hide this horse till we can find some place to put her. So I'm like, hide the horse. Okay. So I take her around the side gate of our residential house. I take her into the backyard. And this was in Tempe, Arizona. We had one of those block fences and the top of the fence was decorative block with holes in it. So I don't know what I'm doing. I take this rope on this horse and lead her in the backyard. This is a starving animal, literally the saddest thing. Her head was immediately down to my dad's lawn and she starts eating the lawn. Well, she also starts putting big holes in the lawn with her feet because it's like golf course grass, you know, it's tiff. So she's tearing up my dad's yard. I'm happy as can be. My mom closes it, comes back. She goes, oh my God, tired of something. She can't be destroying the lawn, you know? So I go to the decorative block of the fence and I don't know how to tie a horse up. So I run the rope through the block a couple times thinking, well, that should do it. And I tie a really secure knot because I'm thinking she's big, right? And nobody told me she didn't tie. So she sat down like a dog and tossed her head left and right and left and right and left and right. And she kind of came back up on all fours and my mom's like, oh God, <laughs> what's happening? She sits down one more time, pulling her head like that and our entire back fence comes down, blocks and everything. Now I have my new horse tied with a block at the end of the rope. She's dragging this block around. She's eating everything she can find in the lawn. My mom's freaking out. And so, the flower bed. And the flower bed. She went through the flower bed. She came up onto the concrete. And of course, I'm happy. All of this is making me happy. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm like, yay, I got a horse. She went in and called our dog veterinarian, uh, Dr. Jenkins. And she told him I had to buy this horse. The horse is starving. He comes over, sees the horse. And he pulls my mom aside and he said, well, you're not going to have a problem keeping a horse because this horse is near death. She probably should be put to sleep. And my mom's like, well, we can't just put her to sleep while Melissa's got her. So we'll have to get her somewhere else, you know, to do that. So we find he recommends a place a mile and a half from our house that we could take her. So I ended up, that's another funny story for another podcast. I got her over there, not knowing anything about anything. I got her over there. But you know, years later, I think I had her a couple years. Years later, I wanted to trade. I wanted to get a better horse, a horse that I found that I could show and I could get, you know, really going. And she wasn't that horse. And so I asked my dad if I could buy this other one. And he said, you can have one horse and that's it. I'm going to support one horse at the boarding stable, not more than one. So I cried, but I knew I needed to go ahead and move her on. And 
Larry Mahan, seven-time world champion all-around cowboy, bought My Little Chica for his daughter. Huh. And she lived out the rest of her days in Glendale, eating grass, fat and happy with nice. Larry Mahan's daughter. Yeah, it was very sweet. It was a really sweet ending to that story. Hey, and along with that, disassembling all of the tack to clean it. Yeah, that's another podcast. Oh, you're going to get me in so much trouble with these podcasts. See, I have told him some of these stories, and now you guys are going to hear them because he's going to bug me and ask me my crazy things. But yeah, well, I'll tell that one another time. Another podcast will tell that one. Today, though, I'm thinking that we also left off with a little bit around the work I was developing when I was in Flagstaff and a little bit about gestalt and horses. I'm thinking that's maybe where we should go with this one. What do you think? Yeah. You've written a book about gestalt and I'm really not clear about what is gestalt. Yeah. The work's so private that you haven't been really in the arena to see what I do. It's odd that I've done it for all these years that you've known me, but I guess you saw my work up in Canada when we were in Canada and we had that kind of open public night. Right. Did a right. With a lady. But other than that, I'm not sure you know what I do. Right. You did the training with the lady. Uh, maybe not training, but you were helping her out. Right. And I don't know what transpired, to be honest with right. you. But on the way to the airport, I was driving her to the airport. She was just spilling her guts, telling me how amazing the work was, how amazing my wife was, which I already know, <laughs> and how much of a transformation the work is doing to change her life. Yeah. Yeah. You used to take a lot of our students to the airport back in the day. Right. Right. In the early days of the CERT program. Yeah. You were our chauffeur. <laughs> the chauffeur and uh, relaying the message to you that you may not have received about how much praise you should get for the work that you do. Thank you, baby. appreciate that. Touched by a Horse offers three comprehensive programs giving you the ability to have the career you've always dreamed about, working in partnership with the magic of horses. Our equine facilitator program provides you with the skills to build a thriving business hosting group experiences with horses. Our equine gestaltist program prepares you to open your own private gestalt practice in partnership with horses. And our master equine gestaltist program builds your gestalt skills both in and outside the round pen. All of our programs include in-depth live classes, business growth training, and a supportive community of herd members to collaborate with and learn from. Visit our website at touchedbyahorse.com to learn more about which program is right for you and your healing herd. Well, I would say gestalt's not an easy thing to put words around it. It's a German word and it doesn't really translate well to English. Most people translate it to wholeness, like W-H-O-L, becoming very whole as a person. I have some German bilingual students who have told me that they feel it's saying flowing into full form, you know, really coming into the fullness of who we are. And for me, it worked and therefore I was passionate. I trained with some incredible Gestalt trainers and teachers for myself once I had my own personal work done. And today, for me, it is a way of life. And so 
might be a good place to start with like, what do we mean by that? And then I'll weave in the horses a little bit. So the most simplistic way I can explain this is if you, the listener of this podcast, are sitting on a fence and you're straddling the fence with a pasture to your left and a pasture to your right. Maybe the pasture to your left, that's traditional analytic therapy. That would be thought of as the Freudian approach and really understanding that what we think creates what we feel and that talking about it and analyzing what's happened to us in our life gets us somewhere. But one of Freud's really top students was a man named Pearls. And he broke away from Freud as his mentor because he saw it completely differently. And he joined what was called the humanistic movement, along with Carl Jung and Abraham Maslow and a lot of different people who we think of as humanistic or holistic providers where they're more person-centered. And Pearls' philosophy was not that what we think causes our emotions, but that what we feel creates our thought. Kind of chicken and egg. I mean, you could probably debate it either way. But for pearls and for people like myself, who is an embodied gestaltist, for me, that fits. That if I'm aware of all the different parts of self, pieces of me, where they came from, how they operate in my world, I'm more able to take responsibility for how I interact with others, how I treat others, how I speak to them, how I hear through what filter what they're saying. And my emotional feeling self actually creates how I think about things. So it's kind of, you know, what order you go with on that. And you are a big feeler. So you, Dane, are a big feeler. So I would say that's how you operate in the world too. And probably a secret to why we get along so well, because we both kind of do that way. We feel something first before we try to figure it out totally and analyze it to death, you know, find find the motive for everything. So when I'm in Flagstaff, back in Flagstaff, I think that's really, for me, when I was originally partnering with my horses was understanding how naturally gestalt they are. Because in gestalt, we believe that life is happening in the present moment. And certainly horses live in the present moment, right? I don't think Rhiannon's out in the pasture going, hey, when I had that saddle on yesterday, did my butt look big? You know, it's not what she's thinking or Roulette's not saying, was Melissa mad at me today? They're in the moment. They're in their truth and in the moment. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So you were a trained gestaltist before you brought the horses into the gestalt practice. Yeah. So I'd had horses all my life and and had by that time in my life, when I became a psychotherapist and was trained in gestalt, I was showing at a world level. I was training others. I was judging horse shows. I was really heavily involved in the horse world. And Flagstaff was my getaway. It was my vacation place and a place to get out of the heat of Phoenix and go up there and trail ride. And then the horses started showing up in a really beautiful way to just be with my clients whenever they were in an emotional state. Took me a while to figure out what drew the horse over to the fence because they weren't chumming them with treats or anything. But it was if my client was feeling sad or feeling anything emotional, one of the horses would be right over to the fence to be with them and to kind of continue that process. So 
One of the other things is gestalt is non-judgmental. So you and I have clients tell me everything. And one of the things that, uh, I guess, a premise that we have is we hold no judgment. So horses don't hold judgment either. If you tell a, a horse that you feel a certain way, they're not judging you for it. They may want to help you lift from sadness more into joy, but they're not judging you for how you're expressing yourself or or how you're feeling. And, and I like that. So they're in the present moment and they're not judging us in our daily lives. And they're keenly aware of energy. And for me, I've taken what I learned about Gestalt and moved it into understanding the energy fields, which will be a whole nother podcast, but understanding the energy field of the human body and of the equine body and how those two interact and resonate with each other, which is really big. So the blending of, you know, in the first podcast, we talked about the horses. My belief is they have an essential gift. You know, they have some way that they want to give to people to do that. And so they have this essential gift to give and through the gestalt work, through being able to say what's happening to a person emotionally creates their thought, the horses are right there. They really don't care what we think. I mean, horses, I'm not sure they can relate to us when we're in our analytical brain. They relate to us when we're feeling something. So it's more or less them feeling the truth or not, right? Yeah, a lot of times it's the truth. I call it congruence. So I think of it as like roulette, our little little gypsy girl that, you know, you know her. She's the little shortest one in the barn. I, I think I know her. Pretty girl. <laughs> you better. He feeds him, but he isn't. Oh, gosh. Anyway, I'm going to tell stories on YouTube. So roulette, she's, she's so fun with this. So if I have a client who's speaking what they believe is their truth, I don't... I don't ask a client what is the truth. I ask them what is your truth, their personal truth. So let's say they're they're speaking about what they want in their life and they're in the pen with her and she's on what we call free liberty. So she's loose. She will come over to the person. She'll follow with them. She actually matches them step for step all the way through. If what the person is thinking and what they're speaking and what they're feeling and what their gut's telling them, if that's all in alignment and it doesn't matter if it's a positive or a negative feeling, the horse trusts people who are in their own truth, you know, because, you know, we have our other ranch in Arizona that's a boarding facility and there's, I think, 80 horses on that today and they're all different people that come out to ride for an hour and go trail riding or give their horse a bath or whatever they're going to do. But it's a primarily women that are there, right? Yeah. And a lot of them don't get along. And so if they come out and they're smiling on their face to somebody, but in their head, they're thinking, I really don't like her. And their heart's kind of cold toward the person. The horse gets nervous because they're like, something's not adding up. <laughs> what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're speaking, that's not adding up at all. We have a lot of a lot of good things to just see how how things can be in congruence. And that's what I think of as as the truth. For that person. So the book I wrote, What in the Heck is Gestalt, really goes into for not just a textbook, it goes into a, an accessible level for anybody to read where from mind to the body, where are we, all the different things about unfinished business. And I was just working with somebody today, a client earlier before we recorded this, and 
you know, she's had a lot of things happen in a traumatic way in her life. She's only 18 and she's already had some very, very difficult physical trauma and violence upon her, sadly, all too common in the clients that I work with. And at 18, she's trying to make sense of it and she really wants to compartmentalize it and put it away and believes, you know, I just won't think about it. And so I had a, did a really nice session with her. And when she's ready, she'll tackle it as unfinished business. But most of the people that I meet up with are in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. And they've been carrying around whatever happened to them when they were 18 for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And the, the reason is because when we experience something traumatic, it goes into the very cells of our body and it's housed there. It's not just in your memory. It's it's not just in your subconscious. So people will ask me, well, why would I want to dig up all this old stuff? It's not that you want to. It's that it finishes it. So for instance, my average client will come to me and they have something in their present life, something going on now with another person in their life and they feel reactive and they feel maybe anger or fear or whatever the emotion is and they don't know why. They'll say, well, I feel this with this person. I don't know why. Okay. We do the work and we find out that it actually has less to do with the person in their current life today and more to do with the traumatic experience when they were nine or five or 14, whatever it was. And the body has just held on to it, waiting for an opportunity to let the words out or the scream out or the tears out or whatever, the swear words, whatever it is that they needed to say when it happened, but could not. So oftentimes, especially with children, things happen and kids are afraid or they can't say it or whatever. Now you're an adult, you're dealing with something that only has tiny little things that cross over and cause your subconscious to say, this feels familiar and you get reactionary. It doesn't have to be, you know, super clear. I can give a really good example. Would it help you if I gave a good example? Certainly. Okay. So for instance, this was a, a woman, she was being promoted at work and her boss didn't want to lose her. And she was explaining to him that she didn't think she could work there anymore because she had such a huge reaction to this man in their conference room. So there was a small conference room. Um, there's one man that worked there. And when he would get excited or passionate or whatever about whatever they were talking about as a group of eight or nine people in this conference room, he would often stand up. It helped him think. He'd stand up. He'd pace the room. He had a loud, booming voice and he'd toss things on the table or sometimes to emphasize his point, he might slap the table. He wasn't a violent guy in any way. Nobody else had any big reaction to him. But for her, literally, she'd have to excuse herself. She'd go in the bathroom and cry. Sometimes she'd throw up. I mean, it would really upset her and she couldn't get over it. And so after four or five incidences like that, where she'd see her hand shaking, she thought, well, I'm going to have to stop working here because it's not his fault, but I can't be in the same room with him. So when she first told me the story, I asked her, I said, has this man ever stood between you and a doorway, like a bully trapped you in a room where you can't leave? She said, no, not at all. Has he ever said anything harmful directly to you? No, he's not even saying harmful things. He's just got a loud, booming voice. He's passionate about what he's talking about. Sometimes he gets worked up about what he's talking about. But no, it's not directed at me or about me at all. 
And okay, fine. So I find out, has he ever harmed anybody? No, guy's fine. So I had her close her eyes and I said, so go back, I'm gonna close your eyes and go back in time. And I'm gonna mimic some of the things that you have said to me today. And I just want you to let them in, just let them travel through your brain, travel through your body and see if you have anything that kind of comes up for you. So she closed her eyes and I stated some of the comments in a loud booming voice. And I, you know, kind of took her back there basically. And her eyes flew open and she goes, oh my gosh, could this be it? I said, what? She says, I'm four years old. I'm sitting at our dining table. We were in kind of a small dining room. My brother's 18, my other sister's at the table and my mom sitting next to me. And my dad's at the end of the table. And my brother said something to my dad. I'm not sure what it was. And my dad stood up, he slammed his hand on the table and started to have really loud words with my brother. And pretty soon my brother and he were like pushing and shoving each other. And my dad kicked him out of the house. And I didn't see my brother again for almost a decade. And I missed my brother. I loved my brother. It was just huge. And then she starts crying, telling me the rest of this story about her brother. And so that unfinished business, what she wanted to say when she was four at that dining table, she wanted to say, stop fighting. Daddy, stop it. Sit down. Everybody be quiet. You know, she wanted to lessen the impact of, of what was going on with her brother and horrified that he was being kicked out of the house by her dad. So that incident she carried forward her whole life. Now she's 35. She's in a small room. This man is, however she transfers onto him some of the behaviors of her dad, when he stands up, her body is screaming and her body's having a really big reaction. So in my work, once I found the background, so what we call the dining table incident, I did a piece of gestalt work with her between her brother and her and between her father and her, where she got a chance to say everything she needed to say to express herself fully, looking back as an adult, you know, really digesting the whole moment and getting rid of it. She returned to work the following week was in another conference room with the same guy that got up and she had a more normal response. She said mm -hmm. to him, you know, Brian, when you stand up and get all passionate, that's what I see. I see how passionate you are about it. Sometimes I lose the point. So, you know, keep coming back to the point you're making because sometimes it's pretty dramatic for me. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. My wife tells me that all the time. I'll sit down and, I, you know, I just need to be reined in a little bit. They all laughed and went on with a very helpful meeting. So it had nothing to do about the guy at her work, but she was having a big reaction to him. Does that make sense yeah, to you? So yeah, so she was just coming to her wholeness, so to speak. Exactly, Yeah. right. She was finding that, out. It makes sense now. Yeah, healing, healing from one incident so it wasn't bleeding over and carrying into another. So, you know, how do the horses do it? Well, they live a natural gestalt life. And as I'm sort of, I've been said that I midwife the soul for people, I believe that's what the horses are doing as well. So they really listen to the story, if you will, that the person's telling me. And they watch for that release, whether it's a release of sadness or anger or whatever it might be. And then they partner with me to either help the person find their truth 
or sometimes to help the person in their physical body, you know, calm all of those vibrations down and, and lift them into joy. I really believe horses want us to be in joy, which is where they are for sure. I was just thinking a friend of mine, he used to, his name was Newt Farnham. He's on the other side of the veil now, but God bless you, Newt. He was a great guy. When I was a kid, he helped me learn how to saddle the Chica, my first mare, when she was rideable, finally. He helped me learn how to put a saddle on and, and put a bridle on her and all that good stuff. And he used to have a, a really fun statement. And he'd say, yep, 11 out of 10 little girls love horses. <laughs> I think that's pretty true. 11 out of 10 little girls love horses. So that's where I started blending horses and gestalt. And I hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. And thank you, baby, for yeah. being on here with thank me. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. And the next time that we're on, I've had some people write in and ask if I would say a little bit about how did I start the certification program and where that is today. We're going to move through a lot of different topics with all of this. I can't wait to get to the point of horses and their emotions. I bred horses for a very long time and I have a lot about breeding and foaling out babies and imprinting and doing all of that. So thanks. Please follow along with us and we'll bring a smile to your face, we hope, and make it a great day. Thanks, you guys. See you next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Touched by a Horse podcast. If you'd like more information about anything we've talked about on the show today or our certification program, please visit our website at touchedbyahorse.com. That's touchedbyahorse.com. Or contact our office by phone at 303-440-7125. Also, be sure to keep up with us on social media. We're at Touched by a Horse on both Facebook and Instagram. See you around the barn and on the next episode.